Hello, AP Macro. Welcome to your midterm review. So I don't know when the test is going to be given for you, um, if it's going to be given before or after uh, our normal sync session. So what I'm going to do is uh, record this podcast where I go over the entire review, and then I'll be on Zoom Sunday afternoon. So we won't Zoom during the week next week, but I'll be on Zoom on Sunday afternoon. And if after listening to this podcast, you really need some help, you have some questions, you can always pop in to ask me. Now, you can also email me. Don't feel like you have to come to the Zoom on Sunday if you have other stuff going on. You know, Sunday is really, I like for Sunday to be your time, but um, I'll be on Zoom if you think you need me. Okay, as far as the test goes, uh, the test is 50 questions. We are, we FRQ throughout the semester, so I'm not going to put any FRQs on this test. Uh, we'll probably have three or four more uh, as we go through the next last two units. So we're going to get plenty of practice in FRQs. I know it's not testing situations where you don't, you know, you have that time crunch, uh, but I still think, you know, just practicing like we are uh, in the classroom will still be good enough. All right. Uh, but it's 50 questions. Uh, there are 20 from unit three and 20 from unit four. And then I've put 10 from unit one excuse me, five from unit one and five from unit two. So that's last semester. Now, I know it's last semester, but it is stuff that you do need to know and remember uh, for the AP exam uh, that'll be coming up in about two months now. So uh, that's creeping up on us. But anyways, that's going to be the format of the test, okay? Uh, when you go, uh, I would have a piece of paper and I would have a calculator because there are a couple formulas you got to do. We'll go over them in a minute in the podcast. Um, as far as the paper goes, let me make this suggestion to you. And now this, maybe this is just me, but with the graphs, for me personally, when I graph stuff, I really like to be able to look and like have it on paper and I can do the shifts, I can do the movements and make all the, you know, I can mess with it versus just looking at it on my screen where I can't do anything to it. So if I want to see, well, what happened to the price level? Well, what happened if uh, short run aggregate supply did this? What happens if aggregate demand did this? Because the questions are going to look like that to an extent. That way I have my paper and I can graph it out. Now, maybe you can visualize it and you're good to go, uh, but it's just something that I personally like and I recommend. However, once again, it's not something that you have to do. Okay, as far as the review goes, the paper copy, or the hard copy is on our classroom. It's on the main page. It's linked. It says midterm review. Um, so go grab that if you want it. And you can uh, have it while we go over this. Or, uh, you know, you can just uh, listen. Maybe put it in while you're getting ready to go to sleep. And you'll probably go right to sleep. Um, so it's your, your call. But anyways, let's get going. So unit three, there are nine standards nine topics um, and there's at least two questions for each topic now like 3.1 on your review just has aggregate demand so that means there's probably multiple questions on aggregate demand all right uh so remember demand and aggregate demand are the same thing they're they're really it, it's the same rules apply what shifts what doesn't shift and all that kind of stuff it's the same thing that we did last semester. We just saw that aggregate on there. And the only difference is what it measures, okay? Regular demand, when we just say demand by itself, that's going to measure me and you. So my demand, 
my personal domain, your personal domain. When we throw in the accurate, accurate, not accurate, uh, accurate demand, that's where we get into the country as a whole or the city as a whole or the school as a whole or whatever. It's just where we combine everybody's demand. All right. So don't get concerned about um, you know what aggregate is. It's just that com- combination. OK, now all the shifts, all that stuff, the increases, all that stuff still applies from the demand rules. So if people's income goes up and you know, not just mine, you know, mine as an individual, my salary going up, my income going up, is not going to affect everybody else's demand. It's not going to affect the rest of the country's demand. Um, that's why we have them separated out. Now, if as a whole, everybody gets a, a, a raise of some sort, that will affect the demand. Okay. And just remember that a right shift shows an increase. So if everybody gets a raise, that means that uh, aggregate demand has increased. Okay. Now we also have to get into some of the other stuff. So consumption, so it's basically the, the GDP formula. If you remember that C plus G plus I or C plus I plus G uh, and how it affects aggregate demand. Okay. So consumption spending. So anything that me and you are doing and When I say me and you, I mean as a whole, if we are spending a great deal of money, okay, that means that agri-demand has shifted to the right. It's an increase. If we are cutting back our spending, that means that agri-demand has decreased. Now, if the government is spending, so remember, they they have to buy stuff. The government just doesn't have a stockpile of stuff that they make and create. They have to go out and buy stuff. When they make a uh, a tank or a, a fighter plane or something like that, they have to purchase purchase it for the most part. Um, that's going to increase agri-demand or, or it's going to show that agri-demand is increasing. If the government spending is down, that's a decrease. Investment spending, okay? Remember, investment spending is what the businesses do to better themselves. So we're talking about um, expanding uh, making a new factory, uh, adding on to their current uh, site, things like that where they have invested, not stocks and bonds and the stuff. Um, that's going to increase agri-demand, okay, or show agri-demand increasing. Now, if businesses are cutting back, then that's going to be a decrease in agri-demand. All right. All right, uh, 3.2. You've got the MPC and the MPS. Now, the first thing to remember about these two things is that we only have two choices with our money. We can either spend it or we can save it. Regardless of what you're doing, you either are spending your money or you're saving it. Okay. Uh, and, you know, if you throw it in the bank, then, and you're like, I'm not touching this. Well, that's saving. Okay. Uh, if you go out and you spend every dime that you get as soon as you get it, then that's spending. And there's nothing else you can do with it. Well, I'm going to dig a hole and put it in my backyard. Okay, that's saving your money. All right. Now, some people come up with crazy things. Well, I'm going to burn my money. Well, why would you burn your money? That's just, you know, that's that's crazy talk. Uh, the only two real things that we can do with it are spend and save. So all for the test, be sure you know the formula. Okay. Uh, the marginal pr- propensity to consume. All right. So that's our spending. Um, it is the change in consumption over the change in disposable income. So be sure uh, you can do that. Uh, do your math. Make sure I'm saying it right. Remember, I told you the very first day that math is not my super strong point, uh, and I feel like I always get 
the formulas mixed up about how to divide stuff, but uh, it should be change in consumption over change in disposable income. Now, the MPS, the marginal propensity propensity to save, is the same deal. Uh, it is the change in savings over the change in disposable income. Okay, so we just changed the top part of our formula from change in consumption to change in savings. 3.3, aggregate supply, short run shifts. So we get into the you know, short run aggregate supply. And just like in the first semester, supply and aggregate supply are the same thing. Just like we talked about with aggregate demand, uh, it's the same deal. Okay, so all the things that are going to increase supply, decrease supply uh, from the first semester are going to have the same effect on aggregate supply, just on a bigger scale, just like with demand. So the cost of inputs. All right, if it costs more to make something, suppliers are going to make less. So when the price of oil goes way up, that's just an input in the supply chain and suppliers are going to supply less. If the price of oil goes down, then supply can go up because it's cheaper to make something. All right. Uh, expectations. Remember, this is what's going on uh, later on. So if you know suppliers think, hey, I can sell this product for a lot more in June, then let's pull supply now so we can have extra stuff to sell at a higher price in June. If they think it's going to tank and be horrible, then they're going to decrease their supply, uh, excuse me, increase their supply right now so they can try and get rid of it uh, before the price goes way down. The number of sellers is also going to affect it. If we add more people, uh, that's just an increase in supply. Uh, basically, just all the things that are going to, to affect supply have the same exact effect on aggregate supply. Now, I am talking about this stuff, and I, I need to make sure uh, at this point that we're clear that we understand and remember the two types. You've got shifts and movements, okay? Uh, there's really uh, only the two things that can happen on a graph. You can either shift or you can move. Uh, if it's movement, remember that's traveling along the line. So that's traveling on the curve and that's when the price changes. Uh, if there's movement, well, that's going to be when the price of whatever we're looking at has stayed the same. But these other things we're talking about, inputs, expectations, uh, the number of uh, consumers, whatever it might be, has changed. Price stays the same, but those things affect supply and demand. All right, 3.4. Uh, you've got long-run agri-supply and the PPC curve, so some stuff from, from Unit 1. Uh, you just got to be able to compare it, okay? And remember, the long-run agri-supply is that straight up and down supply, or uh, that, that, yeah, that straight curve. We call it a curve even though it's straight up vertical. Uh, however, remember, that's going to measure... Uh, basically the maximum capability of an economy. So when you look at that thing, uh, that is the, the maximum, you know, this is what we are capable of doing. And remember the PPC does that too, the production possibilities curve or frontier, whichever you want to call it, that shows the maximum uh, amount of our capabilities as well. So that's how we're comparing those two. Uh, long run prices and wages. At the end of the day, we need to remember this. Okay. In the long run, everything is adjustable. Everything is adaptable. So that's why we, we see this and it is that straight up and down thing because it can adjust. It's not going to be beholden to a change in price or a change in income or a change in wages or whatever it might be because the market can change and therefore uh, everything is flexible. So wages are flexible. In the long run, wages will adjust. In the long run, uh, prices will adjust. So all those things are true uh, in the long run. Uh, number five, the ADAS long run models. 
producing at full employment. So, so remember, um, you know, wherever it is on the, wherever the long run supply curve is for the long run curve, um, that is basically our full employment. Okay. Uh, anything beyond that is, is going above and beyond. So if we're on the long run supply or long run curve and, you know, we're, we're at 5%, 6%, unemployment, whatever it might be, we can always get better. Now, remember, there's never going to be a zero unemployment. So we'll never see it at zero. Uh, but it, it's just the capabilities there. Uh, the recessionary and expansionary piece. <clears throat> so uh, recessionary, remember, that's where real GDP is lower uh, <clears throat> uh, than uh, GDP at full employment. OK, so sorry, I, my dog is snoring and he's distracting me. I was trying to pet him to keep him from barking. And now he's falling asleep and now he's uh He's a distracting animal. Sorry, I apologize. Anyways, so recessionary and expansionary. So recessionary side, uh, this is where real GDP is going to be lower than GDP at full employment. So remember that the line, the curve, whatever you want to call it, long run, uh, is basically showing that full employment. It's showing our capabilities. Uh, and if we're in a recessionary piece, um, we're going to be lower. Okay. Now, obviously, expansionary is the opposite. That's where things are going well. Uh, and we'll be on the other side. And that's where real GDP will be higher than GDP at full employment. Okay. So that means we're going above and beyond our capabilities potentially there. All right. 3.6 ADAS graph, the effect of increases in aggregate supply. Okay. So going back to the, the stuff we talked about earlier in 3.1 and 3.3 with aggregate demand and aggregate shift, uh, be sure you can understand and know what's happening on a graph. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, this question is going to have a graph and it's going to show you some changes on the uh, aggregate demand, aggregate supply model. And you have to be able to figure out, well, okay, aggregate supply increased. What happened? What happened as a result uh, to price level, to wages, to real interest, whatever the the, the prompt is asking you, uh, just be sure you're able to read that graph. The effect of reduction in aggregate supply and an increase in aggregate demand. Uh, so basically it's going to have that same graph. There's a couple of graphing questions on this and you're going to have to figure out uh, what happens. Okay. So what happens when aggregate supply shifts here and aggregate demand shifts here and you have to read it. And once again, be able to figure out what happened to the price level, what happened to the wages, what happened to the quantity, so on and so forth. So whatever the prompt is asking you. So just be sure, uh, maybe go back and take a look at, at 3.6 and the, the, the part of the study guide that you did uh, and take a look at that. Uh, and then increase real short run output. Uh, wow, that's looking at it that now. It's like a, that's a really badly worded <laughs> phrase. Uh, and I apologize. Um, anyways, uh, increased real short run output. So basically production has obviously increased in there because it's saying uh, that in the short run output has increased. So we, we know and we can read into that that ink that uh, our, our production has increased. Um, yeah. Uh, I might have to come back to this and explain that a little bit better once I can uh, figure out what I had typed. Point <laughs> uh, seven. Agri-demand, agri-supply graph, long-run adjustment. Uh, so the basically, you're going to have a long-run curve, and you're going to have an agri-demand curve on there and an agri-supply curve, and you'll have to be able to read the graph. Okay? So, hey, what's happening? So um, 
if the aggregate demand curve is here and the aggregate supply curve is there, uh, and then this happens, you know, what's going to happen to both those things or what's going to happen in the long run? Uh, it's, it'll show you on the curve what you have to do. Uh, effect of aggregate demand shift in the long run. Uh, basically, we, you need to realize that it's going to cause an adjustment. Remember, we said earlier that in the long run, everything is able to adjust. All right. Um, so nothing is stuck. Uh, everything will be able to move and shift and adjust to whatever variables are happening. Uh, eight, contractionary fiscal policy, discretionary fiscal policy, and fiscal policy. So first off, let me just define what fiscal policy is. Uh, those are the things that the government does. So when I say government, I mean the president and Congress. Uh, they have their tools that they can use. It's typically going to be taxes and it's going to be spending. All right. Those are really the only two things they can do. And even with that, remember that taxes is very difficult. All right. They can't, you know, we say, oh, well, if, if things are going too good, maybe the government should just raise taxes, but they have to go through Congress and Congress takes forever to get anything done. Uh, and no one likes to raise taxes anyways. Uh, but anyways, that is the stuff that they can do. They can raise taxes or more easily they can cut or raise spending. Okay. Uh, contractionary fiscal policy. Uh, that is where they are going to try and pull money out of the economy. So inflation has been happening. So their goal would be to decrease the money supply. So in theory, they should want to raise taxes, taking money out of our pockets, and they should want to decrease their spending. Now, <clears throat> expansionary, I know that's not on there, but expansionary fiscal policy would be uh, different. And that would be, hey, let's try and add to the economy. So let's cut taxes. Let's give people more money and let's increase the spending that pumps money into the economy. Remember in unit four, we talked about the multiply, multiplier effect. Well, the government throwing money into the economy multiplies. And then discretionary fiscal policy, uh, that is those things where Congress has to kind of uh, think about and talk about and discuss before they can do it. So we're fixing to get into automatic stabilizers. Uh, those are things that just automatically kick in. Uh, discretionary fiscal policy, this is where the government gets a plan, gets a, a, a policy that they talk about and discuss. All right, point nine, the automatic, automatic stabilizers. So just mention those. Remember, these are those things that just kick in. The, the Congress has has put them into uh, the, the policy, the law, whatever it might be, and they just automatically kick, kick in. Their goal is to, as it says, to stabilize the economy. Basically, we don't want shocks happening and then uh, the economy going wild one way or the other. So the best example is going to be taxes and our progressive income tax. The more money you make, the more taxes you pay. So the thought process, the goal behind that, besides the government getting money from, from people, uh, is that you know if you get a raise, if you go from making uh, $75,000 to $150,000, all right, uh, that's a pretty good swing. And if you're making that extra money, you're probably going to go out and spend some. Uh, if enough people got that raise and enough people did that, that could throw the economy off. That could cause inflation and some other things. So the automatic stabilizer kicks in. Once you go to the next tax bracket, you're paying more income, I mean, uh, income tax. And therefore, you won't have as much disposable income to go out there and spend and throw the economy off. All right. So that is 3.1 through 9. Uh, we're going to take a break for just a moment and we'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, then. Welcome back. Uh, all right, so first off, going back to that... Um, Six point or three point six, excuse me. The increase real short run out, but I think I figured out what I was trying to say. Uh, what are some things that are going to lead to an increase in production? So, things like a decrease in the cost of outputs that'll increase production. Uh, just workers' productivity, you know, people working harder, uh, new technology, decrease in taxes, decrease in regulation, all those kinds of things are going to lead to an increase in. Um, in production. So I think that's what I was trying to get at in the short run there. All right, moving on to four. So 4.1, uh, we get into the financial assets. You got bonds and stocks, stocks and bonds and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times they go together and say, hey, stocks and bonds, but they're very different. So, and that's one of the things you got to be able to differentiate here. So first off, remember bonds are basically loans to the government. So if you go out and you buy a U.S. treasury bond, you are making a loan to the government. So, hey, I got a thousand dollars. I'm going to go buy some U.S. Treasury bonds. Okay, so you've just loaned the government $1,000, basically, is what that is. Now, in return, the government promises on that bond to pay you back the $1,000 that you're letting them borrow, plus they'll pay you back some interest. Now, it is not a huge amount of interest, so don't think, well, I'm going to invest $1,000 in U.S. bonds and I'll become a millionaire. You're not going to, okay? They're, they're not going to pay back at a high interest rate. So just keep that in mind. They are safe. The government's going to pay you back, but um, they aren't going to be a huge moneymaker for you. Now, stocks are actual shares in the company. You own a piece of the company. So if you go out and you buy a thousand shares of Nike, you're now a, you own a part of Nike, Nike. Okay. You're going to be involved in some of the decisions. They're going to send you letters and emails about the votes that you can do. You can vote on the, the board members and things like that. They're not going to be calling you up and saying, Hey, we got this new shoe coming out. We want you to see what you think. That kind of stuff's not going to happen. But some of the big broader things that happen in a, in a company, uh, they'll be asking your opinion, but that's bonds versus stocks. Okay. Uh, the interest rates in an economy. So remember, we can look at interest rates in a couple different ways. We can look at it as the cost of borrowing money. So if I go out and borrow a car, if I go out and I mean borrow a car, if I go out and buy borrow money to buy a car, uh, I'm going to pay back a pay back my loan with interest. If um, I buy a new house, I'm going to have to get a loan. And I'm going to pay back that loan with interest. Now, there's another way to look at it as well. And interest rates are paid to us as consumers. So there are accounts out there where they are going to earn interest. So a lot of banks have savings accounts where you can earn interest. All righty. Now, just like with bonds, you're not going to get rich probably putting your money into a savings account earning you know, 0.2% interest or something like that, or 0.00003% interest. Banks aren't going to pay you a lot to keep your money there. Uh, but it is making a little bit. And, you know, we need to think about it this way. If they raise the interest rate, if they go from 0.1 up to 2% interest, then we need to throw more money in there because now we're making money that way. Okay. Uh, and so when interest rates go up like that, the opportunity cost of us holding on to money goes down. Uh, or it, excuse me, it increases because, you know, if we're just holding on to our cash, it's not making any money. 
the opportunity cost there is that you know if if we're losing money by holding on to it, so we could be putting it in the bank if the interest rates are up, uh, and so that is going to have an effect there. All right, uh, let's see, four point two. Uh, inflation exceeds expected rate fixed interest loan. So this is the the section on real versus nominal G, uh, interest rates. Excuse me. And uh, what we need to remember here is a callback to the stuff we did last semester, where we did anticipated inflation versus unanticipated inflation. Who gets hurt? Uh, who gains? And all that kind of stuff from this these uh, these. Uh, Inflation. So if inflation is expected to be 2%, which is about what it averages per year on a regular basis, but it is at 8%, that's that's something that's going to hurt people. So just remember, look back and try and recall, well, who gets hurt? Who is benefiting from uh, this unexpected inflation? Okay. The fixed interest loans, remember, that is where uh, if I go out and buy a car, I get a six-year loan. I get an interest rate for five, uh, 5% for the life of the loan, that's a fixed rate loan. All right. Now, as the borrower, I would benefit from unexpected inflation because I get to pay back in money that's worth less. As the person who loaned me the money, they're going to be in trouble because they're getting paid back in money that's not worth as much. All right. Uh, however, if I'm on a fixed income, so when I retire in a couple of years, uh, I'll be on a fixed income. And if inflation happens and my bills are 4000 and I you know, used to bring in 4000 and all of a sudden my bills go up to 5000 but I'm still only bringing in 4000 I'm in trouble because then I'm short. Uh, and so just all those scenarios that we're looking at. All right, 4.3 is the functions of money. Uh, so remember, there are three functions of money. You've got uh, the, me uh, excuse me, the, the medium of exchange, the uh, unit of account, and then the store of value. All right, so those are your three. Uh, the medium of exchange just means that money is going to be accepted. All righty. Uh, and I think I talked about it on the review for the test last, the, the unit four test, how interesting it would be to me to, to see what the reasoning is behind and how they're allowed to do it. Uh, but some of these places that I went card only and they, they don't take cash. Uh, and I really don't understand that because there are transaction costs with doing the cards. So I would think that people would want to accept cash as often as possible. Anyways, uh, Medium exchange is going to be accepted. Uh, the the unit of account, this just means it's a signal, basically. You know, prices serve as a signal. So I go into a store and I can see and know, hey, I can afford that. I can't afford that. And then the store value, that's where the money holds its value. $20 is going to be $20. This year, next year, probably even in 2025, 20 bucks will be 20 bucks. Now, how much will that 20 bucks buy? We're not sure. Because inflation could be going up and down and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the transaction demand for money, this is just that medium of exchange piece. So when we're purchasing stuff, we need cash. We need money to do that. All right, 4.4, the reserve requirement and increases to the money supply. So first off, remember that the reserve requirement is that money that banks are required to hold back from deposits. So if you put in $1,000, they have to keep a certain amount back in reserve. And I'm not going to get into the history of the thing, but it comes from, you know, when there was runs on the bank and the banks could not pay back the customers everything that was owed because they had loaned out money. So anyways, how does that increase the money supply? Well, with the reserve requirement, the, the Fed and the banks can increase and decrease the money supply by increasing and decreasing that number. If they want to put money into the economy, then they can multiply that money by just decreasing the reserve requirement. Okay, instead of having to hold 10% back, you just have to hold 5% back. That puts an extra 550, 
500, whatever the number is, into the economy. Okay. If they want to decrease the money supply, then let's raise that. And then if it's like 50%, well, now they have to keep back 50%. And that's going to be less money that they can send out in the form of loans. The fractional reserve banking system, uh, all that means is that banks have to keep a fraction of your money, of your deposits, uh, in their uh, possession so that they can pay you back when it needs, when when you want your money. Uh, how banks work, remember banks, remember first of all, banks are for profit. Okay, they're, they're not, they're commercials. If you listen and watch, banks are going to be like, hey, we're the friendly family bank, blah, 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 blah. They want you to bring their money to them. They, they, you're a customer, okay? They make money off of your money. And so that's what their goal is, is for as many people as possible to put money into their uh, into their bank so that that bank can then loan out that money. That's where they make their money. They don't make their money really off of you, per se, holding your money in there. They make their money off of loaning out money uh, for cars and uh, houses and things like that and getting paid back interest. All right, 4.5. Uh, and I apologize if my dog goes crazy. It's because he is, I think he's going crazy because he looks out the window and he sees things that aren't there because he's growling at, at nothing right now. It's dark outside and there's nothing to see, but he's out there. I think he's going crazy and he's freaking me out a little bit. Anyways, 4.5. So increase in nominal income and the money supply. Uh, so basically that's going to, to increase the demand for money. So if our nominal income goes up, you know, we're going to, to have more money. That's going to increase the money supply. We're getting paid more. Uh, the demand for money. Remember uh, that our money, okay, excuse me, our demand for money is basically tied to some of the things that we want and need. You know, when interest rates affect this, our incomes affect this, uh, all those things are tied to when we need money and when we don't want money. All right. So when we're not spending, we don't need money. So the demand goes down when we're spending. We want money. All right. When it's uh, beneficial to us to go out and get loans and the interest rates are low, then we want money. All right. So all that stuff is going to be tied uh, into that uh, demand curve for money. So be able to look at it. Uh, you did an FRQ with the, the money demand. Um, and just, you know, there's going to be some shifts on there, I believe, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, just remember, same kind of rules apply as the supply and demand curve. Um, as the, the demand for money increases, then it's a shift to the right. If it decreases, it's a shift to the left. Supply, same deal. Supply goes up, it's to the left. Uh, supply goes down, or excuse me, supply goes up, it's to the right. Supply goes down, it's to the left. I apologize. Uh, I've been apologizing a lot this uh, podcast. So I'm going to stop right now. All right. The opportunity cost of holding money. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the interest rates. So on the, when the interest rates for us and our savings, so that means when you know the banks are offering us interest rates to, to keep our money in their institution, or you know, it could also be, you know, there are things out there, um, CDs, Roth IRAs, and, and all kinds of inv investment tools that will pay you interest when you put your money into them. Um, as we see those interest rates go up, we need to put our money in there because that's, that, that's free money. You know, if we just put our money into a CD and it's making 10% interest, that's pretty good. Uh, if you can find a compound interest rate bearing account, 
that's amazing because that's going to pay you on what's into your account. So as you make money, your interest, your, your interest is paid on what you keep in there. So uh, versus a simple interest rate. So ah, I'm getting off topic for just a second. So there is simple interest and there's compound. Simple is always going to pay you on the initial deposit. So you put in $100 and you make $10, you have $110. It's still going to pay you interest on that 100 Compound interest will pay you interest on that Ten dollars uh, on the hundred and ten. So the first year you have a hundred, then you have a hundred and ten. Then that gets compounded. So now it's paying on a hundred and ten. Now it's one hundred and twenty-five. So on and so forth. So the compound interest is something you're looking for. Anyways, uh, it goes back to that when we are seeing interest rates high for our money, making money, we want to put money into those accounts. Okay, we don't want to hold on to it. Opportunity cost is there. All right, uh, four point six money supply and the agri-demand, agri-supply graph models. Uh, so just like I've been saying, you're going to have to look at the graphs. There's going to be graphs that are on the test that you have to look at and figure out, okay, agri-demand shifted here. What happens to the money supply? Or agri-supply did this. What happens to the mo- the, to the, the money supply? Or it's going to say, hey, the, the money supply decreases here. What happened to agri-demand? So on and so forth. So just be sure uh, you're familiar and you can you think you're good with the, the increases and decreases of the money supply and what they're doing to agri-demand and agri-supply uh, on the graphs. All right, the open market operations to fight unemployment. So remember the Fed, the Federal Reserve has three tools. They have open market operations, they have reserve requirement, and they have the discount rate. The open market operations, that is the buying and selling of bonds. So when the... Uh, so it says to fight unemployment. That means the Fed wants to throw money into the problem. So they're going to be buying bonds from us. So that means we go and we take our bond to them and we turn it in for cash. That gives us money in our pocket. We go out and spend that. That's going to fight un- un- inflation, uh, unemployment. Now, inflation will be the opposite. They're going to sell bonds to us. They want to take our money and get our money out of the economy. Reserve requirement. We've already kind of talked about that, so I'm not going to spend much time here on that. But uh, that is the amount that the banks have to keep in reserve when you make a deposit. So uh, if they want to increase the money supply, they decrease the reserve requirement. If they want to decrease the money supply, they raise the reserve requirement. Like I've been saying, though, they don't do this very often because it would be hard on the banks uh, if they constantly had to adjust to a, a floating reserve requirement, basically. Uh, the discount rate. Remember, this is the... Um, the, the rate that the Fed will charge banks that are in trouble. So if I'm a bank, Chris Daniels Bank, and I am struggling and I can't make loans to my customers, I can barely you know, make my, my payments to, to customers when they come in and want their money and things like that, uh, I need help. And so if I go to a, 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 a competitor bank, they're going to try and ruin me by giving me this high interest rate loan and things like that. So I can go to the the Federal Reserve and they'll give me this guaranteed discount rate. If the Fed wants me to keep operating and sending out loans and throwing money into the money supply, then they're going to have a low discount rate. However, if the opposite is true and they want to decrease the money supply, they want banks that are in trouble to begin with to kind of settle down, then they will have a high discount rate and they will discourage us from borrowing. All right. Uh, the Fed action and the aggregate demand shifts. So uh, the stuff we just talked about 
you know, increasing the money supply, decreasing the money supply, uh, whatever they're doing with that, uh, you need to be able to figure out, okay, if they're decreasing the money supply, what's that going to do to demand? If they are doing this to the interest rates, what's going to happen to the, uh, the demand? So that's what that's getting at. So just be sure you're comfortable uh, and can, can see and potentially, you know, uh, jot down the graphs. Uh, so to figure out what's going on with that. All right, 4.7. So change in demand for the loanable funds, changes that shift investment demand, and then loanable funds demanded. Uh, so first up there, the changes in the demand for the loanable funds. Uh, remember, the loanable funds, those are the funds that are available to borrow, okay? And we will go out and borrow money. And that, this is us, this is businesses, whoever it might be. Typically, if things are looking good. So if the future is looking bright, let's go out and let's invest. Let's borrow. Let's go buy that house. Let's go buy that new factory. Let's go buy that new tractor that's going to help us farm or whatever it is we're going to do. OK, uh, however, if the future looks bleak, we're probably not going to go out and do those things. Uh, changes that shift investment demand. Uh, anything that benefits businesses and corporations is going to be what 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 changes uh, and shifts the investment demand. Okay. So when you think about this stuff, um, if the federal government has put in some kind of tax incentive for investment, okay. Meaning, Hey, if you, or let's say they, uh, if you go clean energy in your factories, we're going to give you this tax incentive or, or something like that. Okay. Um, that might be good because they're going to get a, a tax break or, or whatever it might be that might shift the, uh, investment demand and things like that. So basically just when you think about that, when you see that question, just think to yourself, Hey, does that help the, the business or is that going to hurt the business? And that'll give you an idea of what's going to shift the investment demand. Uh, and then the loanable funds demand, uh, it, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, increase in this. Th so an increase in the loanable funds is going to, uh, lead to uh, increase in real interest rates. All right. Because, uh, as more money is borrowed, all right, uh, then they're going to, when I say they're, the banks and, and those kind of in, in institutions are going to eventually raise the interest rates, okay? Because it's, it's that ebb and flow, uh, the give and take, uh, when they're encouraging and then discouraging the spending. All right. So there is uh, Unit 4. Let's take one last break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back. Let's go over Unit 1 and Unit 2 really quickly. So Unit 1, 1 1.1. Deals with the factors of production. That is four things. You've got land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurs. Okay. Land is any kind of gift of nature. So it could be fields of wheat, fields of corn, uh, forests, cattle, anything like that. Okay. That's all land. Uh, labor is pretty easy. Labor is us, me and you. I know a couple of you have said you work. I work. Uh, so we're labor. All right. Capital. Don't get this confused. You've got capital uh, in the form of money. You've got capital, human capital. So us investing in ourselves. And then you have the tools that make other things. 
in this case, the capital is talking about the things that make other things. All right. So the bulldozer, the hammer, the screwdriver, things like that. And then entrepreneurs are a part of the, the factors of production because they take risks with their cash, their money, uh, and it benefits the economy. All right. The production possibilities curve. Remember, this is the one where we're looking usually at two items. Now, some of the practice we did looked at some very broad topics. Uh, I think one of them might have been like guns and butter. All right. So military stuff and civilian stuff. <clears throat> and so we're looking. And remember, it shows us what we can do when we maximize our capabilities. So if we have 500 people and <clears throat> 500 people can contribute 50,000 man hours, that's our capability. OK. And so on the graph, what is happening? Well, if we decide to make all guns, then we're going to be, uh, you know, on whichever axis the, the, the guns is on that graph. Uh, and we'll be making all of that and then zero civilian goods or vice versa. If we're making all civilian goods and no guns, so on and so forth. But, but we're using all 50,000 man hours to do this. Now, we're typically not going to do that. And so we'll have some opportunity costs kick in. Remember, if we're going to go from making all guns and zero civilian goods to making 75% guns and 25% civilian goods, the opportunity cost there is 25% of the guns. So we have to give up something to make the, to make, you know, to, to move along that line because we, we can't, you know, there's nowhere for us to go. We can't make those 500 people increase their 50,000 hours. That's all they got to give. Now, remember we can see some points, uh, down below the curve, <clears throat> the PPC. And remember, that's where things are going bad. Things are going poorly. People are out of work, factories are shut down, and those sorts of things. On the other side of the graph, on the right side of the graph, that's unsustainable. We can't get there. That's asking this 50,000-hour crew to put in 65,000 hours. They don't have it. They can't do that. Now, can we shift out there? Yes. If we increase the man supply from 500 to 600, then that increases our man hours. And so we can make a shift to the right. So the PPC can do that. All right. Absolute and comparative advantage. So remember, this is dealing with trade and, and basically what we're, uh, what we're doing. Uh, okay. Let me take a step back. It's dealing with trade. So you might see it as uh, two countries and what they're doing. You could also see it as hours or uh, you know, work for me or you. Uh, but anyways, it's absolute is whoever can do whatever the best. So if we are a lawn service and uh, we do two things, we weed eat and we cut grass. Okay. If I can cut a yard in 30 minutes and it takes you 45 minutes and I can weed eat in 10 and it takes you 20, I have the absolute advantage. I can do both of those better. So whenever you can do something better than the other person or the other country, that's absolute advantage. But remember, we don't want to do that. That's not fair to me to have to do both. Okay. Just because I do both better than you, uh, there should be something and that allows us to specialize. And that's where comparative advantage comes in. And so we have to figure out who gives up the least. So what should I give up and what should you give up and what should I specialize in and what should you specialize in? All right. 1.5 is the supply shifts. It's all those things that go into uh, the supply curve. We talked about a lot of these already, the inputs, the number of sellers, uh, the expectations, taxes, tech, all those things are going to, to lead to shifts on the supply curve. Um, so I'm not going to spend too much time there because we just in 3.5, uh, 
3.2, I think, or 3.3, we talked about the supply shifts. Changes in inputs affecting on equilibrium. Well, remember, remember equilibrium is where supply equals demand. It's where you know, price is, is perfect and, and people buy uh, everything that's there. Uh, but what's going to happen when equilibrium changes? So, you know, when there's uh, something, some, something happens, whether it be some kind of stabilizer, whether it be some kind of um, shift in supply or shift in demand, what's going to happen to equilibrium? All right, unit 2.1, the circular flow. Uh, take a look back at that graph. There will be a chart, a circular flow chart on the test. You have to be able to read it. Remember, there's the factor market, the product market, and then the household and the businesses. And the circular flow is just all about which way the money is going. Okay. Uh, in the product market, we send money to the businesses because we buy products from them. Okay. So the money is flowing from us to the businesses. Now in the factor market, the money is flowing from the businesses to us because in our system, we own the factors of production. We own the businesses, we own the labor and all those sorts of things. So we are the factors. Okay. And so it's just all about the way the money is flowing. So be sure you can take a look at that and read that graph. All right. Last few things here. You've got unemployment. Be sure you can do the formula. Uh, you'll get some numbers and then you plug in the numbers and you do the math. Uh, it is the unemployed divided by uh, the labor force times 100, and that should give you the unemployment. Remember, there are some things that go into being unemployed. You have to be actively looking for a job. You have to be 16 or over uh, to be a part of the labor force. So, you know, uh, there are people out there that are not a part of the labor force or that have left the labor force. So keep that in mind when you're looking for that. Uh, inflation, expected versus unexpected. We've talked about this a few times, so I'm not going to go back over this. Um, you should be in good shape there. Uh, the GP, GDP deflator. So be sure you can do this. Uh, you're going to have to be able to use the GDP deflator. So be sure you know these two formulas. First off, to get the GDP, GDP deflator, uh, it's nominal GDP divided by real GDP times 100. So that should give you the GDP deflator. So be sure you can do that. Uh, and then also be sure you can use the GDP deflator once you have the GDP deflator. Uh, and that's going to be nominal GDP divided by the GDP deflator times 100. Uh, and that should give you an idea of what's going on uh, with the inflation and those sorts of things with that number. Finally, you got the business cycle. Uh, remember, the business cycle is just the um, ebbs and flows, the peaks and valleys of our economy. And so you've got the peak, which is the best times, the trough, which is the worst of times. And then you have the expansionary so that's when you're coming out of the trough and you have the recessionary. That's when we're coming off the peak. In the middle of that is the potential line. And that's where we're operating with our employment and things like that. Uh, so just be sure, you know, you can read that. Uh, our, our line is going to be kind of steady. All right. Uh, but then the, the business cycle is going to go up and down and through uh, that line. Okay, guys, that is it. I will be on Zoom on Sunday the 5th. At some time, I'll post the time and the link on our uh, Ethos page. So check there if you feel like you need to check in with me. If not, send me an email or ask questions, uh, you know, however you want to. If you don't want to be on the Zoom, uh, that's fine. Uh, guys, best of luck on this midterm and every other midterm you're taking. I hope all is well. Uh, and you have a great weekend, and God bless you, and take care. Bye-bye.